shortly after I moved to Maui some years ago, Kamala invited me to go snorkeling. And I'd never been snorkeling before, so I didn't really know what to expect. And we went to the shop, the, the snorkel gear shop, and I got my fins and my snorkel mask with prescription lenses and a little chart of the kinds of tropical fish around Maui from the uh, local shop guide. And he told us where not to find the sharks, which was not what I needed to hear, but <laughs> or probably it was what I needed to hear. And then we uh, proceeded to drive uh, down to the end of where all the resorts were, out across the most recent lava flow on Maui, which is three or four hundred years, a very desolate landscape. Now Maui, of course, is a very beautiful island, but we were in the most raw volcanic rock section of Maui, and it just looked like a moonscape. There was just big jumbles of piled up black rock with almost nothing growing on it. So we were told where to find this path across this lava field and uh, in, eventually we found it. It was very obscure, very well hidden. And we got out of the car, parked the car and climbed over the pipe and, and, and started walking out this path, which once you got away from the road a little bit was a little bit more visible Nevertheless, we still got lost. And it was maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, walking across this scorchingly hot black lava, which if you stubbed your toe or fell down would really make a mess. Nevertheless, we got close to the water and Kamala pointed out this little inlet in the, uh, in the shoreline. And she said, oh, that's where we're going. And I looked at that, and I, I got to confess, I was really disappointed. I said, that little mud puddle? <laughs> or something like that. And I said, okay, okay. So we, we walked around and got to the, the little pebble beach on this little inlet. And I mean, it's little, it's like twice the size of this room. It's small, tiny. And I said, okay. So I put on the fins and put on the, the mask and waded into the water. And it's very shallow. It's only, you know, a foot and a half deep in a lot of places and three feet deep at the most in anywhere. And I, I put on my mask and just, you know, we're in the middle of this desolate black. And the mountain is, is looming up above us off that way. And put on the mask and I flopped down in the water <laughs> and it is a total magical unbelievable life under the water it is just you can't imagine the thousands of fish it just and they're just they're just you're just one of them you're just and all kinds of colors. They're just beautiful fish. And they're not particularly skittish of you. And it was just, I popped up as soon as I saw all these fish and I said, oh my God, you won't believe it. I'm, I, this is, I'm, see ya. And I, and I was into exploring this little cove, every little nook and cranny and rock for a couple of hours. Got a scorching bad sunburn on the back, but I had a great time. There's a saying in Maui, it's painted on the side of one of the snorkel instructor's trucks. The best part of Maui is underwater. And it's true. It is unbelievable. A whole, a whole other universe that you don't see from the surface. And if you don't get in and look from that perspective, you don't see it.
Mindfulness is something like that. I remember the bleakness of my life or the, the austerity of my life or the severity of my life before Dharma practice. It was very active going nowhere. And when I first stumbled on the Dharma accidentally, it wasn't easy. I didn't know what I was doing there. But I got my lenses adjusted to see that what mindfulness does is it reveals this extraordinary life of beauty within us, just below the surface of things. And to discover it, you have to look. You have to put on your mindfulness lenses and look within and you discover this whole, well, a whole universe of phantasmagoria that you never would have suspected or expected from looking from the outside. There are many ways to understand what we do in practice or what happens in practice. And we talk a lot about the minutia of practice, practice details, what you see, how to understand it in a retreat like this because most of the work is looking very minutely, continuously, intimately at just the very mechanics of the mind and really bringing it into view for a more refined understanding. And it's very easy to lose perspective of why am I doing this <laughs> anyway? What, what's the benefit of this intense inner exploration, which is not easy. I mean, we all have to go back to work or, or go back to meet our family and civic obligations that are kind of far away, right? may, may feel rather far away at this time. But maybe the most ordinary way to speak about the benefit of mindfulness practice is to say that cultivating mindfulness beautifies our life. I think we've all seen in ourselves and we've seen in each other and we've seen in others who practice the Dharma a a vibrancy, an aliveness, a presence, a uh, something real to connect with. And it can be as simple as just the, the eye contact or the stillness within that seems to, doesn't seem to get ruffled. And we feel it in ourselves. We see it in ourselves, certainly on retreat, at the end of retreats, or in others. These are not accidental. They're very, they're a direct result of the development of mindfulness. It's said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and every culture has their standards of beauty. But the inner beauty of mindfulness is recognizable by all because there's a stillness, an integrity, a presence that everyone, any culture, can recognize as uh, not unique, but certainly noticeable. 
I like to watch us come into the hall for a Dharma talk because, you know, all 45 of us have to get through the doorway in a matter of a few minutes, settled into our nests. <laughs> and yet, we do it with an, a lot of grace, a lot of sensitivity, a lot of awareness. It's just oozing out of us. And sometimes come in early and just watch. It is really beautiful to see how we function as a, an alive, sensitive, responsive community. Not a bunch of individuals that are kind of packed into a room, but a unity of a community that is just enjoyable to live in. So tonight I want to speak about some of the qualities of mindfulness, qualities of mind that arise with mindfulness. And in the Pali language they're called sobhana. And sobhana means radiant, shining splendor. Kamala may have mentioned that Manindra, one of our teachers from India, used to say, when mindfulness is present, all the other beautiful qualities of mind are nearby. And when you look at the enumeration and articulation in the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, you see that when mindfulness arises, there's another 18 qualities that always arise with mindfulness, like confidence, tranquility, equanimity, lightness of mind, faith, non-attachment, non-aversion. There's always some element, some amount of those qualities present in every moment of mindfulness. And so we work to develop mindfulness and all these other ones come along as kind of a bonus. So I want to speak tonight about what they look like in our life as they mature, as they come into uh, be, being integrated into our being and into our lifestyle so that you feel assured and confident that the work you're doing here is beneficial not only for getting through the retreat, but <laughs> will certainly be beneficial in our life. And all of you who've been practicing for any length of time already know this, but I just want to point it out because we can lose perspective. And it's good to be reminded. So I want to speak about five qualities that hold or contain all of the sobhana. And the five qualities I want to speak about tonight are awareness, integrity, compassion, contentment, and creativity. Awareness. Is there anything more that needs to be said <laughs> about awareness or mindfulness? Yes. <laughs> and the piece, the piece I want to speak about tonight is taken from a quote in the Dhammapada that says, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness is a precious jewel. This quality of non-negligence, mindfulness is called non-negligence. And what it's pointing to is this quality of presence, 
that both participates in the events of life, yet has the capacity to keep an eye on it, to observe it. So I call it participatory observation. And it allows the mind to approach conditions in life somewhere between absorbed indulgence and blind denial, which, as we know, are the polar extremes that we wander between in our relationship to everything. Indulgence or denial, avoidance, fixation, it's just... And mindfulness or awareness allows us to find that middle place where we're neither indulging nor avoiding. It also allows us to have a very full connection, very full intimate connection with our experience, clearly recognizing what is going on. And it's surprising to me when I see both new yogis or beginners, and even when I see it in myself, how exquisite it is to just be present with the simplest things in life. And it can just be walking or sitting or feeling the sun, feeling a breeze, watching a sunset, a flower, watching the raccoons (laughs) scramble for their How can something so ordinary be so enlivening and so exquisite and so moving? It's because of this non-negligence. It's because of the diligence to pay attention, to really be present and observe what is going on. So much of our life is, as you know, uh, run on automatic pilot. And the ordinary and the repetitive and the mundane are just dismissed as so much kind of obligatory stuff. And we look for, you know, the exciting, the different, the pizzazz. Several years ago, I was at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And, you know, yogis who come on retreat have a certain homogeneity. Well, on one retreat, one fellow showed up who did not fit the mold. And this wasn't the the, uh, gambler from Las Vegas. He didn't last long. But it was... (laughs) It was another, really. It was another fellow. He was a very rotund, not blue-collar worker. And he was slumping around for several days in the retreat. But he was, he was doing his best. He was having a pretty difficult time. It was his first retreat. And then somewhere you know, in the middle of the retreat or towards the end of the retreat, I came into one of the walking rooms and there he is doing his walking practice like it was a ballet. I couldn't believe it. This, this guy who'd been slumping around like, oh God knows what, but some of us <laughs> at times. And he's just walking with the most delicate touch and feel and it was just mesmerizing to watch him. Well, at the end of the retreat, he revealed that he had been given the retreat by his co-workers as a kind of a gag gift certificate. He worked for the New York City Sanitation Department. And none of his co-workers had ever been to a meditation. <laughs> they didn't know anything about it. But he really got into it. And it, 
it was just a testament to the power of awareness to transform your life. Even if you're not interested in it, even if you're not interested in the Dharma, you know, if you practice awareness, you'll become more sensitive, more alive, more awake to your immediate experience. Mindfulness has a way of cleansing our sensory palate. You know, we come, we're so overstimulated and we're so uh, filled up with sensory stimulation that one more, even dramatic thing, hardly impinges on us. We barely feel it. And yet, a few days in solitude and a few more days of paying attention and a little bit of quiet and reining in the distracted mind and suddenly a simple raisin tastes better than any meal you've had in a fancy restaurant in the past six months. How does that happen? Non-negligence. We're paying attention to the ordinary, the repetitive, the habitual, the mundane, and really being there for it. It's, it's not like the raisins here are better. <laughs> it's, like, it's like our ability to connect with the present moment is better. Well, in the training, like a retreat like this, of course, we're developing intense, continuous mindfulness. And we get to see the dramatic cleansing of the sensory palate. It doesn't stop. Just because we leave here and go back to our daily life, mindfulness is still with us. We can cultivate it. We can learn to cultivate it in any activity. It isn't because you're on retreat. It isn't because you're silent. It isn't because you're going slow. It isn't because you don't have to go to work today. It's because we're paying attention. And that's what makes life so rich. Ryokan, well-known Zen hermit, eccentric poet, <laughs> says, the rain has stopped, the clouds have drifted away, and the weather's clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this world. Abandon yourself. Then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. Now we can begin to understand how the moon and flowers might guide us along the way. When I was first practicing with Sardo Pandita, when he came to America in 84, I was still a beginner in practice, and uh, I was having a challenging time. And we were reporting to him every day. My time was 2 o'clock, and we had to use this very formulaic way of reporting our experience, and I just had a difficult time. And one day I was waiting in the alleyway for my time to report and the woman who was reporting in front of me was having a fantastic retreat. And she was just exuberant and excited. She was talking to Saito about remembering her past lives and what she was doing in her past lives and everybody was laughing, having a great time, the translator. <laughs> I was feeling like, where's the breath? <laughs> so she came out and I kind of moped in to see Saito. I did my bows and, you know, just out of utter frustration and, you know, disappointment in myself, if I blurted out, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives? Saito very calmly looked at me and said, no, remembering this life. Remembering to be present for this life and what's actually going on moment to moment here. 
well, that was both sobering and welcome. I didn't want to have to think I had to somehow recover past lives when I couldn't find the breath. <laughs> but, <laughs> we've all had that experience of just being so utterly frustrated with our practice that we get into these esoteric states of mind thinking about what we, we imagine we're supposed to be doing. And the simplicity of just knowing when you're stepping and what the taste of a raisin is never enters our mind or infrequently enters our mind as spiritual practice. But that's where it's at. The non-negligence of paying attention to the most ordinary, simple things. The second quality I want to speak about is integrity. And we've mentioned it a little bit during the retreat, but it is, there are three elements to integrity. The first is modesty. The second is rectitude or straightness of mind. And the third is confidence. And what this is pointing to is how through mindfulness practice, we become very finely attuned to our inner life and what resonates as true for us. We live in a very complex society and there's just, uh, it's a pluralistic society of just so many uh, different uh, options and lifestyles and uh, opportunities. It's sometimes very difficult to know what's real, what's meaningful, what's valuable to me. And it takes an ongoing observation of our inner life to really get in touch with and to be able to acknowledge and to accept where our heart really lies and what resonates with us as being true or deceptive, uh, valuable or insignificant. And we can't look out there and find that answer for ourselves. We can only come to it through direct observation of our minds. Our own sense of appropriateness is going to be the guide for successfully navigating the path. Because if our actions, our speech, our thoughts doesn't resonate with us, within uh, the most sensitive part of ourselves, there's going to be a lot of dissonance. There's going to be a lot of doubt. There's going to be a lot of hesitation, anticipation, dissipation, not anticipation, but dissipation of our energy. So when we come on a retreat like this, of course we have a minimum of rules to kind of keep us all heading in the same direction, not impinging on each other too much. But within that, we are free to explore our own mind and what really uh, feels right, what feels honest, what feels like the truth, what feels like the path to harmony within and harmony without, and then to uh, acknowledge that and then act on that. You know, we live in, as I mentioned, this very pluralistic society, and we have just multiple forces of conditioning in our life. We have economic conditioning, we have political conditioning, we have uh, parental conditioning, we have geographic conditioning, religious conditioning, uh, generational conditioning, ethnic conditioning. There's just a tremendous amount of guidance offered to, to us. And 
as our society as a whole may profess to uh, represent or to honor or to value certain qualities, and yet we know that we don't always live up to what we aspire to, individually or collectively. And so one thing that gets revealed in our mindful exploration of our own heart is the dissonance we feel with our cultural conditioning. You know, I don't know if you've noticed it, but the view of the world coming out of Wall Street, Washington, and Hollywood is not my view of the world. It's not, that view, it's not the view of my world, hardly at all. And yet they're very commanding voices in our culture. And it goes in, as the Tibetan nun uh, Palmo said. Our minds are like, are very absorbent. They're like a sponge. They'll soak it up. And then we've got to deal with it. So I think one of the challenges of mindfulness is to really see what we have soaked up that really doesn't resonate with our inner compass. And then to have the integrity, to have the courage, to have the confidence to live with that integrity. To live with integrity. What we see is really um, the compass within. Very difficult to do because societies standards of acceptable or even admirable may not be sufficient for liberation. We had a young friend who's just finishing his um, doctorate's degree in psychology and throughout his whole undergraduate and uh, graduate level studies he has just wanted to practice the Dharma. But out of his concern for his parents' uh, expectations that he get a career, an education in a career, he has plowed through, I don't know how many years it is now, but he'll be getting his PhD in psychology soon. Immediately after which, he's going to Burma to ordain. How does someone have the sense of what they want to do when they're in their early teens, mid-teens, and sustain it through all the conditioning and the pressures of parents and early adult years and academics to hold fast to what you know is your direction. So he asked us for advice to, uh, like, where could he go? Who should he see? Where can he learn this? That he, the Dharma, practice the Dharma, learn the Dharma, ordain. And in considering all that we know, we couldn't think of a more demanding, high bar master than Upandita. So we took him to see Upandita, introduced him to Upandita, and they had a little talk. After which Upandita said, I'd be happy to welcome you to the monastery and I'll offer you your robes and bowl and ordain you and train you. So this guy is like ecstatic. But he's just starting. (laughs) 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 But his, his commitment to his interior integrity is Unbelievable, it's just fantastic. It's possible. We get this courage, we get this attunement with our inner compass, and we get this straightness of mind and the confidence to live with it from practicing mindfulness.
it comes slowly, gradually, but it is an inevitable accompaniment to developing mindfulness practice. The third quality I want to speak about is compassion. We have awareness and integrity. And the third is compassion, not so much formal compassion practice, but the heartfelt caring for ourselves and others that arises spontaneously with mindfulness. We all want to be seen, we want to be recognized, we want to be valued, we want to be appreciated, we want to belong, we want to be uh, a valuable contributing member of a group, a family, a society. We all want that. And what I see in my observation is so many of us don't get encouraged to care for others and provide that for them. It's very, it's very easy to just uh, overlook the members of your community or neighborhood or students or friends that just aren't getting that kind of support. And it's, it's just the support of the heart, the recognition that, you know, you're a valuable person. You're, you're just for who you are, how you are now, not because of what you've done or what you will do or anything else. And mindfulness allows us to see that within ourself, both our own personal limitations but also our own aspirations and our own sense of what's possible by us. And mindfulness affirms that within us. To practice mindfulness successfully, of course, we have to arouse tremendous courage and confidence and energy and aspiration and willingness to learn from our mistakes and all these qualities of caring for ourselves. And when we know that about ourselves, when we see that this is what we have done with our own practice, we can offer it to others freely. This is invaluable. We need a lot of this in the world today. As Mary Oliver writes in her poem, Wild Geese, which you probably all have heard, you do not have to be good. You do not have, do not have to walk on your knees 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. We already belong. Mindfulness reaffirms that, and through developing mindfulness, we can reaffirm that in others. One element of this capacity to care is to share. It's to be generous. To recognize the abundance that we have within us and to be willing to and proactively seek the opportunity to share it with others. We all have a tremendous gift 
within us to share with others. It's up to us to find it and to find or create the opportunity to share it with others. There is a tremendous need in the world for the goodness that we have within us. I think it's been my path, really, to be a Dharma servant. Uh, shortly after my first retreat, I got a notice that the Meditation Center in Massachusetts had been purchased, but it was in disrepair. And even though I didn't know anyone and hadn't done any meditation for a year and a half after my first retreat, when I got the notice that they wanted workmen to help repair it, and I had the skills they were looking for, carpentry and plumbing and painting and masonry, I immediately said, well, I'm going, and went to this uh, retreat. It was a work retreat for a couple of weeks, and there were 30 or 40 people there that were just paying, half price, to go there to work for free. It was so rewarding. Partly because I knew that I was contributing to something that I was going to be a part of. I immediately felt like I was going to be a part of this for uh, some time. And partly because it was so beneficial for so many others. That was just the beginning, and after 10 years of service at IMS, then I went to Burma, did my practice, came back, and IMS took me in under their wing and gave me an opportunity to start sharing the Dharma, and it has been that way ever since. It's a very rewarding opportunity to serve the Dharma in some way. And I think it's, for me, it's, it's partly out of um, uh, knowing what I value about the Dharma and helping to create the opportunities for others to receive or to feel or to acquire the same. And I, just the other day I was looking around Cloud Mountain and I was just noticing, it, it's really nice here, but you know, it's getting a little run down. It needs some attention. You know, it needs a little paint, it needs a little plumbing fixtures, it needs a little this, it needs a little that. And so I suggested to Dhammadasa, I said, you know, we ought to, um, <clears throat> we ought to plan a two-week uh, work retreat <clears throat> and just uh, get the buckets of paint and get the plumbers and get the carpenters and you know, a group of 15 or 20 people could do an awful lot of work in a couple of weeks. Well, it's not on the schedule yet, but keep your eyes open. It may happen yet. One of the other qualities of this caring capacity generated by mindfulness is uh, loving-kindness. And of course there's the formal practice of loving-kindness which Kamala taught you earlier in the retreat and there's the ongoing attempt to be loving towards ourselves and others both difficult to friendly. But there's a larger dimension to the loving-kindness that also develops through uh, mindfulness practice. And I got a glimpse of this, or I got a hint of this, when I read something that the Buddha said. He said, I resort to the forest for two reasons. 
I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. The Buddha resorted to the forest out of compassion for future generations. The purchase of the adjacent land here and the trees on it, the forest on it, is for that very purpose. Out of compassion, well, out of a pleasant abiding for ourself here and now, and out of compassion for future generations who may not yet be born, even, who in their time will want to hear the Dharma. They'll want places of seclusion and quiet in a world which is rapidly consuming them. Quiet places, forests that aren't going to be cut, are getting fewer and fewer. And this love of humanity or this love of uh, something so much bigger than ourself and even our generation. Yeah, our generation has its challenges with the environment, getting the environment back on track and kind of passing on the legacy of the earth to our kids, our grandkids, or our nephews and nieces, or whoever is coming behind you in your family. And the ability to invest in something greater than yourself is an expression of loving kindness in the aggregate, in a bigger sense. And I find that uh, when I am faced with I was just feeling overwhelmed with the problems with the environment or the, you know, the inaction of who I think should be taking care of things, whether it's politicians or corporations. When I get overwhelmed with just feeling like it's useless, it's helpless, it's hopeless, it's, uh, I find that it's rewarding and beneficial, nourishing, to do something as simple as write a letter to a politician, plant a tree, make a donation, just to take some little action that addresses the big picture. Because in doing that, we empower ourselves. We come from a place of caring, from awareness, from compassion, and it is an act of generosity and loving kindness to, to all to, to make that statement, to take that action. <laughs> Lao Tzu says, caring is the shield from heaven against being dead. Caring is a shield from heaven against being dead. The fourth quality of, or beautiful quality of mindfulness that I want to speak about is contentment. And it has two elements, both the calm and the equanimity. I think maybe the restlessness, the distraction, the busyness, the pace of our life is the most uh, difficult conditioning to face with mindfulness because it is so insistent and so persistent that it's very difficult to even see the value in calming down when multitasking can accomplish so much. And yet, I see for myself and I see for others that when on retreat or when practicing awareness, that calmness or tranquility of body and mind 
is the most sought after and appreciated experience. It's like we live a polarized life of busy, multitasking distraction with occasional binges of extreme tranquility. I don't think that's what we're really after. I think that's what we see is available, but through the development of a life of mindfulness, a life of awareness, our appreciation of calmness, tranquility, seeps into our lifestyle, not just our Dharma practice. And instead of just paying lip service to, wouldn't it be nice to do less, we actually do less. Or we simplify calming the body, calming the mind, and finding more balance. It's easy to do with awareness. Without awareness, we're just pulled into the mainstream or the maelstrom. One of the, I think one of the most important insights into how mindfulness works is we plant the seeds with intention and they sprout whenever they wish. <laughs> Luckily, they do because what is it that saves us when we're wandering off in some distracted fantasy land endlessly for days, weeks, however long it is between retreats? <laughs> it's awareness. Awareness comes and saves us, rescues us from, well, a lifestyle that we don't really choose to live. Only by default do we choose to live it. And one, uh, one of our students from the Bay Area who's been practicing with us for, for many years, she, several years ago, she started a, uh, a nonprofit to bring to corporations the question, what is enough? What is enough? And it's a great question to bring to ourselves. What is enough? Enough activity, enough stuff, enough anything. Because so infrequently do we ask ourselves. But you know, for many years when I was a monk, I lived in uh, Rangoon in a big monastery, in maybe the biggest monastery in Burma, one of the most prestigious. And there were just lots of people there. And Saido Bandita was the uh, chief preceptor. And I'd been there for a few years, up to three or four years, and was quite uh, comfortable there. After I left Burma, I went to Thailand for, to do a three-month retreat. And I asked uh, uh, an assistant to find me a place where I could, could practice, where it was quiet. They eventually found a uh, uh, a monastery over near Cambodia. It was out in the forest and there were just two monks at this monastery, neither of whom spoke a word of English and I didn't speak a word of Thai. And they took me to this, uh, I got a bus ride out to this monastery and uh, they, they, I got there and I told them I wanted to stay for three months and they said fine. And they, they took me to my cottage and uh, the abbot of the monastery was living in this, this nice uh, building that was cement and glass and tile and had a moat around it. And it was really, <laughs> really, really paka, they say, you know? And so they took me up, up the hill and out in the forest. And they brought me to this shed <laughs> that was on stilts. And it didn't have any windows and it didn't have any doors but it had a floor <laughs> and a roof, a tin roof. <clears throat> we wouldn't use it for tools because they'd rust. We wouldn't use it for a pet, but it's what they offered me. 
And that's where I stayed for three months, during which I didn't see anybody other than those people that I saw in my alms round. I didn't talk to anybody. Nobody in the village spoke English. And after our alms round and breakfast at 8 o'clock, I didn't see the other two monks for the rest of the day till 6.30 when we went on alms round again. My companions were the snakes, the ants, the bats, the lizards, the chickens, the hawks, and the owls, who all scared them uh, out of me at times. I never knew I could be so happy with so little. It's like nothing to do. No one to satisfy. No expectations to meet. It's amazing how happy you can be being totally anonymous with nothing to do. But it's not easy. It takes a lot of willingness to be present with those conditions as they are and to understand that it's good enough. To really feel deeply it's good enough. <clears throat> we all have this opportunity every day in our life to, to see what is good enough. And through mindfulness, we can bring it into view and really understand it. The fifth quality of beauty that arises with um, mindfulness practice is, well, I'm calling it creativity. And it's a combination of uh, some qualities of mind that get aroused through mindfulness. They are lightness of mind, pliancy of mind, adaptability of mind, and proficiency of mind. Now these are all technical Buddhist terms, but you begin to get a sense of what they do to the mind, how agile and resilient and creative and light and adaptable the mind can be. Well, why isn't the mind like that all the time? I mean, that's a fair question. Well, habit. We do things that are convenient. We do things that have worked before. We do things that allow us to be comfortable. And a lot of it ends up being very repetitive. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of mental energy, to hold habit in place. Now, what happens when you develop mindfulness? Mindfulness sees through the conditioning of habit, routine, automatic pilot, and we're asked to be present for each moment, not falling back into what's comfortable, what's convenient, what's economical, but what's real for us in this moment. As we develop the capacity to be with the present moment, we loosen the bonds of habit. When we loosen the bonds of habit, all that energy that's been holding it in place is now available to us. It's now available. We have very little idea of how much energy it takes to hold our life in habit and routine. But when we free the mind momentarily, temporarily, more permanently from habit and routine, all that energy becomes available in each moment. How couldn't the mind be energized, creative, agile, light, adaptable, proficient, willing to take on anything, new or boring. We get a glimpse of this even on a retreat. I know some of you artists or writers or painters or whatever sit down, watch your mind, and suddenly the, the creative idea of your decade arises full bloom and you spend I don't know how many hours 
in, uh, kind of proliferating yet before you begin to recognize, so this is just thinking, planning. But nevertheless, problems get solved in the quietness of awareness that are intractable or have been intractable for ever because the mind loosens up and the energy is available for new connections, if you will. This creativity is, well, also urgently needed if you want to be free. If you want to live a life of freedom outside of the realm of habit, uh, you will need creativity. One last story to share my creativity story. A few years ago, as many of you know, a friend of mine, student, came to me and said, do you know any um, humanitarian organization that supports education in third world countries? I didn't. But a week or two later, one of my teachers from Burma let me know that he was looking for funds to build a school in his native village. So I said, okay. So I talked to my friend, talked to the teacher, or the Saida, and said, is this a match or what? Well, it was. And after you know six months of sending funds abroad, we then decided to go see the school. And well, that was just the beginning. Now it's three or four years later, and we have been going back to Burma every year and building schools, and we have additional funders. I think last year we built 12 schools. This year we've got another, I don't know, half a dozen, six or eight, nine, I'm not sure. Now it sounds like, oh, that, that's nice, that's fine. Send money, build schools, yeah. It is nothing but problems. <laughs> well, not nothing but problems. It's a lot of problems. There's a lot of uh, cultural differences. There's a lot of financial differences. <laughs> there's a lot of build. There's just tremendous amount of uh, wading through stuff. But when you're creative, <laughs> you really come up with some pretty interesting ways of dealing with people who don't speak English, governments that don't appreciate you being there, finances that, well, a country that doesn't have a banking system, the US government that has restrictions against sending money to Burma, and all that. Nevertheless, because of mindfulness and just a willingness to just be there each step of the way, problems get identified, solutions get found, schools get built, it is so rewarding. Seeing the school and seeing the kids, that's rewarding. But just solving the problems, building the schools, supporting a whole village by building schools, it is, uh, well, it's just very rewarding. Couldn't be done without awareness. You can send your money off to somebody and let them build schools, but to do it on the ground, you just have to be on your feet and responsive in ways that I, I didn't expect. But it's possible. It's available. If the mind is free enough to you know, adapt, see the conditions, respond to the conditions, and, and find solutions, we can do this with anything. It's not just building schools in Burma. You know, it's getting your house painted. You know, feeding the dog when you're not going to be there, whatever. But it's seeing outside the box, or you know, being able to comfortably respond to conditions, reaching outside the box. Mindfulness. These are some of the qualities of of mind that get developed through the practice of mindfulness, and it's not just for here on retreat. These qualities go with us wherever we go. Any amount of effort we put into developing mindfulness yields benefit in these areas of our life.
So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down.